Hello everybody, I'm Kia Ora. Um, in today's session, we will be talking about the proposed improvements um, to the guidance on interrupted traffic flow theory um, contained within part two and part three of the guide to traffic management. Um, we have over 400 people registered for today's session, um, so welcome to you all. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Ostroads and I will be moderating today's session. First of all, uh, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. A little bit about Ostroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. Uh, the project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Network Operations Program, which is managed by Richard Del Place. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. Um, the report today's webinar is based on and the slides can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. There's also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions for the Q&A at any stage during the webinar. Um, if you could also name the slide number that your question relates to, it would help us to uh, better answer your question. Um, you can also also use that same question box um, if you have any technical problems. We've got Anne Randall um, helping us behind the scenes, so please let Anne know if you have any technical problems. But just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So leaving the browser, closing the browser, leaving the session and rejoining the session by your registration link usually um, helps um, um, fix this problem. So this session is being recorded uh, and we will let you know when the video is available on our website um, and you can also listen to uh, this session in your podcast app. And it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce our presenters for today, Mark Platz uh, and Emily Platz. Mark is a director and principal transport um, traffic engineer at Point8. He has over 15 years experience in the fields of uh, traffic engineering, transport modeling, transport planning, um, road safety auditing and project management. Mark is passionate about traffic analysis and transport modeling and has extensive expertise in mesoscopic transport modeling um, projects for public and private sector clients. Emily is a traffic engineer for Point8 and has a wide range of experience in traffic engineering and transport planning projects. She has a strong understanding of traffic flow theory and fundamentals frequently applying uh, this knowledge to solve complex problems in uh, projects for public and private sector clients. Um, welcome to Emily and Mark, uh, and I will now hand over to Emily. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ekaterina, for that lovely introduction. And welcome everybody here today. Thanks for joining us online and taking the time to come and see this presentation. My name is Emily and I'll be starting off the presentation today. So firstly, I'd like to take you through an introduction to the team and the project objectives. So there were a lot of people involved in the development of the new guidance for the Guide to Traffic Management Part 2 and Part 3. And these people can typically be separated into two distinct groups, the project team and the review team. 
So on the left-hand side of the slide here, I can, you can see the project team, which consists of members from Point8, Kittleson and Associates, and our Austroads project manager, Aidan. The project team worked together collaboratively to develop the guidance for the inclusion within part two and part three. From point eight, we had Mark Platz, who's also presenting here with me today, Alex Williams and myself and other staff. From Kittleson and Associates, we had input from Paul Rees, Lee Rodigatz and Bastian Schroeder. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Kittleson and Associates, they're a very experienced team who assisted with the development of the Highway Capacity Manual for 2016, which is the American equivalent of the Austroads guidance. In terms of their involvement with this project, Kittleson provided a lot of input for the project direction, specific technical guidance and peer review throughout the development of the guides and the case studies. On the right-hand side of the slide, you can see the different review teams that were involved with throughout the project. So for this project, we had a staged review process where all of the deliverables were reviewed in turn by each of these groups shown here. So first of all, we have the project working group, which I'll discuss more in the next slide, followed by the network task force, and finally the Austroads board. So a little bit more about the project working group or PWG. The project working group was made up of at least one member from each of the Austroads jurisdictions. Each member is shown here on the slide. Member organizations within Austroads typically nominate a person or persons to be a part of the working group based on their role or experience being relevant to the project at hand. The national task force is also structured in a similar fashion with one member from each of the jurisdictions. At this time, we'd also like to give a really big thank you to everyone who was involved in the project and who gave input that helped shape the outcomes presented here today. The title of the project was Improved Guidance on Interrupted Traffic Flow Theory. And as the name suggests, the project centered around developing updates to the guidance on interrupted traffic flow theory contained within parts two and three of the Guide to Traffic Management. As you may be aware, the Guide to Traffic Management contains 13 parts in total, which cover a broad range of traffic management topics and activities. For the purpose of this project, we only provided updates within part two and part three, as this is where the information on interrupted traffic flow theory is contained. To give you a brief overview of each of these parts, part two is titled Traffic Theory Concepts and is typically considered to contain a lot of the theoretical and mathematical applications of traffic flow theory. On the other hand, part three, which is titled Transport Studies and Analysis Methods, offers practical applications of the theory presented within part two and relates to the analysis of performance and capacity of roadways and road features. It is also important to note that there are elements within part two and part three of the Guide to Traffic Management that are not related to interrupted traffic flow theory and therefore were considered outside the scope of this update. Two examples of these topics are uninterrupted traffic flow theory and data collection methods. In terms of the project delivery, the project was programmed within three major overarching stages. First of all, there was the develop, the, sorry, the review of the existing guide to traffic management and the review of any available literature surrounding interrupted traffic flow. Second of all, there was the development of the case studies and the guides in terms of their structure and objectives. And thirdly, there was the finalization of the guide and the case studies. 
At the conclusion of each of these stages, the project team hosted a workshop with the project working group to gain insight from the working group members and to discuss the direction of the future stages in the project. In addition to the workshops, formal reviews were undertaken by the project working group of the progress report and findings. Towards the conclusion of the overall project, all of the project deliverables underwent national reviews by the Network Task Force and the Austroads Board. The objectives of the updates to the Guide to Traffic Management Part 2 and Part 3 were primarily to provide operational level guidance and case studies on interrupted traffic flow theory contained within the Guide to Traffic Management Part 2 and Part 3 to reduce the reliance on international sources and include more Australian context where appropriate, and also to identify gaps and opportunities for improvement within the current guidance. These objectives were developed with the intent of assisting practitioners to develop effective options with respect to managing congestion and competing demand issues. I'll now hand over to Mark to continue the next part of the presentation. Thanks, Emily. As we have a diverse audience with us today and interrupted traffic flow theory is the scope of the project, I just want to spend a few minutes going through some key concepts and explanations before we launch into the detail. So to start off, I'll give a brief overview of what traffic flow theory and interrupted traffic flow theory are. So traffic flow theory studies the interactions between different road users, which can, can encompass all nodes. Those interactions uh, between those road users and the infrastructure they interact with. So this infrastructure can be road, the roadway intersections and pathways. Uh, so interrupt, uh, sorry, uninterrupted flow is the flow condition that occurs in a traffic stream that is not delayed or interfered with by factors external to the traffic flow, but by its own internal traffic interactions. And a good example of this to keep in mind is highways. So interrupted flow is the flow condition that occurs when external factors have a significant effect on the traffic flow. So the most commonly noted examples of these uh, intersections, including signalised and unsignalised intersections, but also includes infrastructure elements such as pedestrian crossings, metered ramps, and inland public transport stops. The distinction between interrupted and uninterrupted traffic flow conditions was something that we had to keep in mind throughout the project to ensure that we were sticking to the scope and the brief of the project. So relating back to the objectives of the project and prioritising operational guidance to practitioners, particularly for those that work for or work with road authorities that are managing or dealing with congestion regularly. So typically congestion is addressed by assessing performance of the facility, utilising transport analysis methods underpinned by traffic flow theory which is really important for practitioners on a day-to-day -day basis. So knowledge of these fundamental fundamentals enables effective understanding of the root, root cause of issues and what elements of the railway road feature to address. As Emily noted earlier, stage one of the project was the literature review and the guide to traffic management review. This formed the basis of the detailed project work as part of the project proper. The literature review set the future direction of the project and recommended improvements to the AGTM Part 2 and Part 3 for Austroads and the working group's consideration. It involved the review of the current editions of Part 2 and 3 
and related external literature sources, both sourced locally and internationally. The key items within the literature review included the findings of each document review, as well as a critical analysis of the current AGTM guidelines. It focused on the theory and analysis relating to interrupted traffic flow, as well as identifying suggestions for case studies for inclusion into the upcoming guide. Based on download statistics of part two and part three from Austroads' website, we know that part three is much more utilised than part two, and therefore an element of the literature review reflected that the focus of the updated guide should prioritise part three. So on this slide, we have a short list of the documents reviewed, but not all of them. And feel free to download the research report, which has the whole list in it, um, either from Austroads' website or the handouts in the sidebar. Notably, the documents that are not shown here are the Austro other Austroad documents and guidelines, which were examined either for further information or to determine relationships and links between other parts of the guidance. For example, AGTM part nine and part 10 contain information on signalised intersection. So this is relevant for us to examine. The approach in the literature review was to identify opportunities where the project was able to provide updated content reflecting new technologies or changes to traffic operations in a typical local context, or existing content with the opportunity to provide further detail and explanation, or new AGTM content replace, which can replace externally sourced reference material. So the objective and outcomes of this literature review were to assess part two and three to identify and scope the additional content. And this was not as simple as just identifying the key content areas missing but included the detail of it should include these components and it should relate to the other parts of the guide this way. Reduce, it also reduced practitioners' reliance on external sourced information and make the guide more holistic, as well as identifying updated or improved guidance where updated research or practical applications were in effect. The purpose of the guides are to provide a comprehensive traffic management guidance for practitioners involved in traffic engineering, amongst other specialties. The review of both parts considered the content that relates to uninterrupted flow and interrupted traffic flow theory. However, as we've mentioned, consideration was only given to the interrupted traffic flow components. AGTM part three provides a thorough and holistic presentation of information relevant to traffic studies and analysis. The guide contains a comprehensive description of traffic studies, including traffic survey collection methods and technologies, as well as statistical methods to ensure appropriate sample size. For the analysis portion, the guide refers heavily to the HCM, which is the US equivalent document. So given the downline statistics discussed previously and the focus to provide operational level guidance, it was determined that the procedures detailed within part three would be expected to yield greater results and therefore a focus was placed on improving that part of the guide and less was, emphasis was placed on part two. So literature, literature review was provided to the project working group for review and endorsement, which then focused the efforts of the remainder of the project. I'll hand back over to Emily as we continue on. Thanks, Mark. 
Um, so now we are going to go through some of the different sections that we have proposed for updates or inclusion within the Guide to Traffic Management. And we will start off with looking at the content that we've proposed to update within part two. And as Mark said, there was a bit more of a focus on updating sections within part three. So for part two, we've only proposed to update the section on critical gap acceptance. So critical gap acceptance, along with follow-up headway, is one of are some of the most fundamental aspects that underpin traffic flow theory. These concepts are already covered within part two of the guide. However, we, update, we identified the opportunity to expand on the current guidance that is surrounding critical gap acceptance. Critical gap acceptance is the typical gap that a vehicle will accept to undertake a maneuver to cross or join an oncoming traffic stream. Given that it is such a fundamental element of traffic flow theory, there is lots of data and research available around this element and the project team felt that the guide could be updated to reflect some of these research. In addition to the current content on critical gap acceptance, we have also proposed to include additional context around factors that can influence gap acceptance times, as gap acceptance times can vary greatly from what is considered to be the average. These are typically influenced by factors such as site distance, maneuver geometry, vehicle speeds, reaction times, risk appetite, among others. Due to the variation that can be observed within critical gap acceptance times, we've also proposed to outline methodologies on how site-specific critical gap acceptance times can be calculated based off of measured data. This utilizes methods including the Green Shields method, RAF, and logistical and transformation methods. Providing these methods to determine site-specific critical gap acceptance criteria provides practitioners with additional information that can be used when monitoring and predicting congestion. Now moving on to part three, we have proposed that there are seven sections within part three that should be either added or updated uh, in the new revision of the guide. So I will go through each of these now, starting firstly with travel time reliability. Travel time reliability is a measure that measures the consistency of travel, uh, travel time along a route across any specified period. Analysis of travel time reliability can be used to assess the performance of a roadway throughout any chosen time period. So you can assess the facility across the span of the day to show the variations throughout the day, specifically in relation to peak hours or non-peak hours. Um, or you can assess across the span of the year to show any seasonal variation that occurs within the travel time along that road section. This means that reliability can present a more holistic representation of performance when compared to traditional analysis methods that typically can use average values across the peak hour. Predictability and reliability of travel time is also something that is often anecdotally reported to be valued by road users of all modes, which relates to the fact that they can predict what time that they will arrive to their destination and plan to arrive on time to their destination. This is one of the reasons that reliability is an emerging analysis trend, both within Australasia and also internationally. Reliability is one of the key topics that we did receive Kittleson's input on, due to it already being included within the Highway Capacity Manual. So in terms of the content that we have proposed to include within the reliability section, we have proposed to include a high-level description and overview, explaining what reliability is, explaining some of the different definitions, 
applications, impacts and limitations of travel time reliability. We've also identified some situations where reliability may be a useful analysis tool and identified various measures that are available to calculate travel time reliability, such as statistical range methods, buffer time measures and tardy trip indicators. For signalised intersections, signalised intersections is one of the sections that is already contained within part three of the guidance. It is quite comprehensive, the section that exists currently. However, it also refers the reader to several external documents and there was an opportunity identified by the project team to provide more in-depth explanations of some of the fundamental core principles and some of the effects that these core elements of signalised intersections have on the traffic flow and performance at these intersections. As we said earlier, one of the key objectives of this project was to provide guidance that would assist practitioners in developing effective solutions when managing congestion. It's the belief of the um, project team that a strong fundamental understanding of the core elements was therefore necessary to effectively manage and develop solutions. In addition to this, we also wanted to provide an improved understanding of the calculation procedure that is used for most of the signalised intersection analyses. So to that end, we've proposed to include some further discussion on the considerations around reviewing signal times, including cycle lengths and phase splits, also integrating consideration and lane utilisation. We've also included some discussions around the use of performance measures and alternative performance measures, such as queuing length, and the discussion of the varying levels of complexity of analysis that are available to practitioners. And now I'll hand back over to Mark to continue. Thanks, Emily. On to roundabouts now. So similar to each signalised intersections, roundabouts are included within the current guide. Where it differs though is that the content provided and the level of detail within the current guide is, is less than for signals. Project team found a number of opportunities to provide more detail and understanding for the reader how operates, how benefits operate, and how they could perform based on different geometric parameters. Currently, AGTM Part 3 does not present fundamental theory or calculations. It does provide capacity graphs for single lane and two lane roundabouts. It does provide an explanation of how roundabouts operate in principle. However, the guide does rely on Supra to undertake that capacity analysis. The upcoming guide provides a detailed explanation and discussion of fundamental factors that influence performance of a roundabout, um, particularly changes in the central island geometry, changes to circulating island geometry and approach geometry, including lane widths and speeds. Discussion of traffic flow interactions at roundabouts um, including lane utilisation gap acceptance parameters and how these may increase or decrease roundabout capacity is also included. Bottlenecks is a new content area to be included within part three. Currently there's an absence of guidance to assist practitioners to identify, characterise and manage bottlenecks. The content in part three is more of a practical application, whereas the, the maths and statistics are covered in part two. The guide outlines provides discussion of flowcharts which help the reader define bottlenecks and their relationship to congestion, including what type of bottleneck it is, 
It helps the reader identify key characteristics and their causes, as well as giving examples of both recurrent and non-recurrent bottlenecks. The guide provides a bottleneck identification framework, uh, presented as a flowchart that outlines the fundamental steps to identify, diagnose, and mitigate those bottlenecks. Included also are potential mitigation techniques with tools that are applicable to the Australasian context. I'll hand back over to Emily now. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so moving on, the next section that we have proposed to include within the part three of the guide to traffic management is a new section that we've proposed to be titled Active Traffic and Demand Management Techniques. So active traffic and demand management or ATDM is a broad term that can be used to describe the dynamic management control and influence of travel demand, travel capacity and traffic flow at transportation facilities. ATDM controls utilize available tools and assets to manage traffic flow and influence traveler behavior in real time. Some examples of common ATDM techniques are variable speed limits, roadway metering, dynamic lane assignment, and adaptive signal control. The detailed design and implementation considerations for these ATDM techniques are presented throughout other sections of the Austroads guides, depending on the style of the ATDM technique. However, the link that we found to be missing was the effect that each of these techniques have on the traffic flow and subsequently the capacity and performance of interruptive flow facilities. ATDM techniques are also something that are utilized throughout majority of Austroads jurisdictions, at least in one way or another. However, there was a current absence of this guidance surrounding the effects that these techniques have on traffic flow. So, We've proposed to include descriptions of different ATDM techniques that are applicable to interrupted traffic flow conditions with a focus to providing a theoretical discussion on the effect that each of these techniques has on traffic flow. So for example, if you consider that you might have a dynamic lane assignment at an intersection where it is sometimes a through and shared through and right and other times it might be a dedicated right turn lane uh, then that would affect the capacity of that lane uh, on the other side you might have a travel time information board which influences travelers to take a different route or take a different mode and this can affect the demand for a route The next section that we've proposed to include is large vehicles in the traffic stream. So we've defined large vehicles to mean transit vehicles, freight vehicles, and other large sized vehicles. These types of vehicles have different vehicle characteristics that impact the traffic flow and capacity of interrupted flow facilities. Consider a large truck that has been stopped at an intersection. When they go to accelerate to continue moving, they have a higher mass and therefore a slower acceleration, and this has an impact on the traffic flow at this location. The other thing that is relevant to larger vehicles is the presence of bus stops or tram stops, and particularly when these uh, transit stopping bays are in lane, but also they can be an effect when they're out of lane due to the deceleration and re-entry of the vehicle into the traffic lane. On the flip side, the interesting thing to consider regarding this is that these sorts of high occupancy vehicles can also improve the overall people capacity or trip capacity of a route or facility. 
So to that end, we've proposed to include a discussion on the various different vehicle characteristics and the impact that each of these has on the traffic flow fundamentals. So some of the ones that we've chosen to include are gap acceptances, headways, deceleration, acceleration, and turning circles and length. Um, we've also identified some of the operational impacts associated with the operation of on-road transit vehicles or services, including, like I mentioned before, deceleration and then time for passengers to board and alight the service and then re-entry and acceleration time. The last thing we've chosen to include here is a bit of a discussion around some of the capacity and flow impacts that can be um, observed from the use of transit and high occupancy prioritisation methods. And the last section that we've proposed to update is multimodal considerations. So currently within the Austroads guidance, there is a section on multimodal level of service uh, and also a section on pedestrian level of service. These two sections refer heavily to the Highway Capacity Manual and other external documents. And we felt that they could be expanded to include other road user groups, such as public transit users, cyclists, and freight operators. This is in line with the content con contained within the Guide to Traffic Management Part 4, um, which does use similar road user groups. So we propose to include discussions around the consideration of user experience as a performance measure and different methods to quantify the level of service for each of these different major user groups. And we've provided an acknowledgement that capacity and performance for a facility or a roadway um, is not definitive just based on the passenger car performance. Uh, and it's a prompt for practitioners to consider the other road users that may be present at that facility. We've also provided a discussion around managing competing demands between different road users by referencing back to the movement and place framework contained with in, I believe, part four of the guidance to traffic management. And just a reminder for our audience to send through any questions you might have for the Q&A session at the end. Uh, if you can let us know which slide number your question relates to, that would help us greatly. And now I will hand to Mark to discuss the case studies. The final section of our webinar today is to run through the case studies that we proposed for inclusion uh, within part three. The three that are provided are accessing reliability, signalising intersections, and effects of roundabout geometry. So we were fortunate for this part of the project to have input and support from member organisations, uh, South Australia, New South Wales and Tasmania, to prepare these case studies, as well as uh, input from Kelson and Associates in the US um, for the day-to-day -day input and review. The case studies were born during the literature review process when they were presented in scopes. So following that endorsement, we put together a methodology and data set and then once they were prepared, they went through the standard review process for Austroads. So it's important to note here that all the case studies are hypothetical locations based on synthetic data. There's, there's no intent for any of them to reflect any jurisdiction or any real world case, but they have been deliberately prepared to demonstrate and reinforce the theory and the concepts within part two and part three. 
The Assessing Reliability Case Study provides a worked example that demonstrates the coefficient variation procedure and it outlines the reliability assessment and understanding of that road length. It outlines the high-level method of the coefficient variation procedure based on the nominated reporting period in the case study, but it doesn't get tied down into the statistic calculations uh, though. The value of this case study is in the discussion of the results, highlighting key considerations uh, of the performance and how to determine and consider the, the travel time reliability. I'll hand back to Emily now for the remaining two. Thanks, Mark. Um, so for the second case study, this was our case study on signalised intersections. As you may have noted on the slide before, this is a worked example style case study. The intent of this case study that we really wanted was to focus on the core principles and performance measures that were demonstrated throughout part three um, and to really exemplify those and show them in practice throughout a worked example. We felt that this was the best way to demonstrate this to the reader. So what we have done is we've included the analysis of a base scenario uh, and then the development of two mitigative strategies to demonstrate the application of the theory. After the analysis of the base scenario, the outputs from that analysis are the typical outputs that you would see from really any standard signalised intersection analysis. So degree of saturation or the V on C ratio, delays and Q lengths, things like that. So we took the output results from the base scenario and then provided some discussion and thoughts around how to interpret these outputs and how to utilise the outputs to guide the next step of determining some sort of mitigative strategy to combat any performance issues that were happening at the intersection. So this is where the development of the two mitigative strategies came in and these two strategies were both strategically chosen to demonstrate two very different ways of addressing a very similar problem in the base scenario intersection. The value that we see within the case study is really, um, we, we get to the point at the end of the base scenario where you have the outputs that would be typical of a signalised intersection analysis. Yep. Um, and so you, you take, we take those outputs and we provide a discussion around, around how do you interpret those outputs, what do they mean, what do they represent in practice, and then also how do you utilise those outputs to maybe inform the decision that you get to to have some sort of mitigative strategy. So what, what indications do you look for, do you look at the queue length, what are we looking at? How, what are we trying to fix? And then using that information and really going through that discussion um, that talks the reader through kind of how to consider those things. And yeah, I think that's where a lot of the value comes in from that case study. So for the roundabouts case study, this was the third case study that we have proposed for inclusion um, within the third part of the Guide to Traffic Management. And as mentioned previously, the updated roundabout section has been updated to include additional content and context around the various geometric factors that influence the roundabout performance. This case study has been designed to support that new information and it presents the analysis of roundabouts with varying geometric factors. So the intent of this case study is really to assist practitioners in understanding how roundabouts operate and providing them with knowledge that can be used to determine the suitability of 
implementing a roundabout or the design of a roundabout to address traffic flow issues. We have chosen to present four different scenarios that demonstrate how the roundabout geometry and traffic control can influence the traffic flow parameters and performance. And the four scenarios that we have chosen to demonstrate um, include the effects of roundabout geometry on capacity and specifically we've chosen lane width here, the change between a single lane versus a multi-lane roundabout, the effects of increasing the central island diameter and the capacity improvements that are possible through changing the lane use assignment. And that is all for the formal presentation part of today's session. Thank you everyone for your time. And don't forget, if you do have any additional questions, you can send them through on GoTo and I will hand back over to Katerina to begin the Q&A portion of this second session. Thanks. Thanks so much, um, Emily. Um, and Mark, um, great presentation, uh, really interesting. And um, our audience, um, our participants have been sending us uh, questions throughout the session. So I will start with um, slide 22, where you talked about, uh, oops, sorry, wrong one, um, critical gap um, acceptance. Um, so one of our participants um, is noting that another critical uh, fundamental aspect of uh, traffic flow theory is um, follow-up, is a follow-up headway. Um, so have you only looked at critical gap acceptance or you've also considered um, follow-up headway um, in your recommendations? I'll take this one, Katarina. Mm -hmm. um, in, in our work and through the, the review of part two, as well as uh, some external sources, uh, we looked at both. Both were included within um, sort of the, the theory that we considered and looked to include. I think that it's fair to say that the, the bulk of the change is around critical gap acceptance and, and not so much the, the follow-up headway, but, but that doesn't mean to say that we um, think of them differently or they're, they're any less important to each other. I think they're both related and um, definitely for unsignalised intersections, follow-up headways is very important. So sort of accepting that, um, but with just the way that the the project sort of developed in the review that we, we went through and um, focus on the critical gap. Thank you, Mark. Um, I will take us to slide 26. Um, and the question here, um, so have you looked at uh, the effects of uh, reversed priority on the performance of roundabouts? That's, um, that's a very good question. That that didn't come up in the, in the detail that we looked at. Um, roundabouts got heavily debated and discussed and reviewed through the workshops that we went through. And if you recall the slides of the program, we had a series of workshops and roundabouts was one that came up all the time. Mm -hmm. I think that the position that um, the project team at you know, us and Kittleson, as well as the, the, the Osroads working group came to was there's there's much more day-to-day -day and, and um, typical conditions that roundabout part of the guide doesn't include before you get to, to really complex parts of roundabouts um, and the, you know, the, the advanced use of roundabouts. So I think we didn't get that far. We wanted to make sure that we took roundabouts to the level it needed to be in the guide before we went further and further um, down through 
and what he was talking about there in that question. Thanks, Mark. Um, so moving to bottlenecks. Um, so have you considered different bottlenecks, uh, bottleneck capacities for wet or dry weather conditions, for example? Thanks, that's, that's a really good question. We, it comes up in the framework. So I think what we try not to do in this section is have the answer for every specific type of um, flow breakdown. Mm -hmm. But accept that they're, they're all related in some way into where you can group them. So yes, bottlenecks occur and they're probably different based on weather conditions, based on um, uh, different components. And that, that's sort of where the, the guide talks through the different types of bottlenecks and uh, their characteristics, particularly the ones that recur all the time where a bit more capacity reliant, as well as non-recurrent ones that occur due to an incident or conditions. And, the, the toolkit that's proposed helps consider um, really what you could do in a wet weather scenario and, and how maybe recurrent bottlenecks in wet weather maybe something you could you could look at. Thank you, Mark. Um, so large vehicles. Um, Oops, I keep getting to that slide. Um, so one of our participants is saying that he works in regional cities where they have uh, B-doubles and um, road trains um, in the traffic stream. So the question is, what are the limits of the large vehicles in uh, traffic stream analysis? We were fortunate on this project to have um, member organisations from obviously all over the country, but particularly Darwin and sort of regional New South Wales, where the conditions they face uh, are different to what we expect to be in Brisbane and some of the other capital cities where you probably don't uh, deal with B-doubles through the city um, at all or, or, or regularly, whereas in some of those other regional towns and, and cities, it is a problem. I think what I want to say for this content area that's going to really guide is it's not a it's not a, a mathematical procedure that says a B-double has this type of um, equivalent card units or it has this type of performance, but it's a way to understand and provide the reader further detail and some references of what they can do and how they can consider it. What we can't do is give a, a, um, a theoretical calculation example of if you have this vehicle mix um, in this network, you come with this answer. It doesn't do that. It helps you understand that if you have a lot of big doubles in this type of network, you know what you might find. Um, thanks, Mark. Um, so next question um, that relates to slide 30. Um, so should capacity be considering um, number of people rather than numbers of vehicles used? Yes, strongly agree with that. I think um, depending on your location and the, the mix of modes in your facility, I think vehicles at times is the wrong performance measure. Definitely at times it is the right one. Not to say that that's, you should always just think about the people holistically, but I think what we are saying is that movement in place framework is very powerful and it already exists in the guide to traffic management in part four. And what we didn't need to do in this section is reinvent anything, but we wanted to provide um, that relationship between part three and part four of the guide. We wanted to expand on how you could consider 
um, performance and quantification of the facility and, and provide uh, the reader with some other ideas. Um, thank you, Mark. Um, so one of our participants um, asked for clarification um, about the case study um, on this slide. So um, did you mean, was it, uh, was it a road link or a road route comprising several links? Yeah, that, that's a good question. We didn't sort of go all the way into the detail for this case study, but it, it's definitely a route. So the case study has, um, it's a, a number of kilometres long and it has uh, in the order of sort of eight to ten different mm -hmm. types of intersections. Uh, and I think it also has a, from memory, a, a level crossing in it. And it, it's a very diverse um, long section of road that at different times of the day and different times of the year performs differently in it. It was put together to, to show that how that can how you could consider that. Thank you, Mark. Um, another um, general question. So, have you looked at the interaction um, of intersections in close proximity, and also interaction of mixed uh, types of intersections in close proximity? That's a really good question. It, it's probably something that relates more to the network management part of the guide. It's, it's probably not part two and part three and not necessarily um, directly related to interrupted traffic flow theory. It's probably something that sort of goes into network management uh, component of the guide. And, you know, it came up in, in discussions and I, I, I recall um, something around the case studies sort of including um, components of that, but we, we stayed out of that in, in this one because we had to focus on part two and three when you was covered um, to an extent in other parts of the guide. Um, thank you. Um, so another question um, here is, what application um, or special tool, a special tool um, has been used to run and support um, the roundabout and signal intersection scenarios? For the roundabout, roundabout, roundabouts, both in the guide and in the case study, we um, we use Citra. Citra is the the tool, and, and the tool being the, the I suppose what we'd say is the common tool that most practitioners would would pick up uh, to do a capacity analysis for roundabouts. What we do talk about through the guide is that you the roundabout capacity analysis method is not uh, is, is complex, it's not easy, and it's probably not something you could do definitely on the back of an envelope, definitely not sort of with a calculator um, particularly easily. So we didn't want, you know, there was no point in, in sort of watering down the complexity of, of roundabouts. They are complex, there's lots of relationships that go on, and Sidra does a, a very fine job of doing the calculations for roundabouts. What, what we sort of took the approach of is that probably need to understand roundabouts really well and then understand the outputs of a capacity analysis really well to, to go to that next level of what does it mean. And that's kind of what the roundabout study does. In terms of signalising intersections though, there is a, a calculation method that you could follow through paper or you know, through a spreadsheet um, as well as Sidra. So we, we discuss all of those and definitely the case study goes through line by line. The the image that you can see, if you go to the next slide, Katarina, the, mm -hmm. the image that you see this one? Um, yep. Uh, has, we go from that to uh, a, um, a results table 
through the calculation process that we talked through and um, outlining part three of the guide. So it gives the reader some options and there's definitely a shortcut method that we, we say is not appropriate all the time, but appropriate at times that you could do when you're on site to quickly work out how, how long that base could be or should be and what you see. Thank you, Mark. Um, so will any of these traffic flow theories be able to be used in capacity under temporary traffic management? Or how does temporary traffic management alter some of the capacities in open lanes? There, I'd probably use that with caution would be my um, my answer to that. There, mm -hmm. are, there is different times you could use it. I think the transient nature of temporary traffic management at times um, makes it difficult. Uh, there's also uh, an underlying assumption of familiarity and driver behaviour, driver performance that you take um, as given in a, a typical capacity analysis where temporary traffic management um, and incident or planned roadworks may direct or influence driver behaviour that you may not necessarily directly relate to the fundamental traffic flow theory that underpins the work. So you, you could use it, it may work. Um, there are times that I would warn against it for those reasons. Um, thank you. Um, so does the uh, proposed guidance provide advice on, the, uh, on how to manage uh, traffic flows and congestion associated with bus stops? Sorry to interrupt. Yep. So, how does the proposed guidance um, does the proposed guidance uh, provide um, any advice on how to manage uh, traffic flows and congestion associated with bus stops, public transport? I, I think that's a, a very specific use case um, mm -hmm. that I um, I'd be surprised if we go to that. that pinpoint precision in the guide where it's, um, you know, it's, it's part of a, a suite of documents. Mm -hmm. It relates to a couple of parts of the guide that we talked through. So there's multimodal considerations where you should consider that. We talked about the movement place framework. Is that actually a good thing or a bad thing in terms of bus stops? We talked about large vehicles in the traffic stream as well. That gives you an understanding of, you know, how bad is it in one bus stop versus intensive bay. You can, that, that chapter will talk you through some of the comparisons and understanding kind of what what might be the difference in traffic flow, as mm -hmm. well as um, just in terms of you know, flow theory. Um, part two does a good job of understanding uh, providing you know vehicle mix, passenger car unit equivalents, and things like that to understand sort of what you could get as a one of saturation flow into a capacity through a public as well. Thank you very much. Um, and we have another question here. So, uh, did you consider interrupted uh, effect of raised platforms on traffic flow? I think uh, that's a really good question because they're definitely becoming more commonplace by the sound of um, what I've been hearing. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't think we I don't think it did come up in the in the in the literature review or at the early stages at all. So no, um, I don't believe it's something that we considered. Um, so what about software package suppliers and how all these would translate into um, traffic modeling systems that practitioners use daily? I'll jump in here and wait for Tara. I think mm -hmm. what we've 
relief, we went to great efforts to make sure that we didn't look to replicate or contradict any of that, that expertise um, in software. So we're not saying that any of the work that um, is in the guide um, is better done in any piece of software or it's better done in the guide. We sort of know that on a day-to-day -day basis, just the way the industry is, that you, you rely on software more than you will a spreadsheet to do some of this work. So uh, nothing that we've done um, prohibits or, or changes the way the software is at the moment. The SIDRA is a tool um, that will get picked up at the right times and you know, anecdotally there's times you use SIDRA correctly and there's times that a different piece of software is the right piece of software to use. I think what we don't do is um, provide that guidance of this is what you should use at the right time but give the, the reader more understanding, more explanation to um, make that choice themselves. A follow-up question here. So how can you relate this into the design phase of a road um, intersections design using uh, 12D software from um, topo uh, topographical survey data? Um, uh, the best way to explain that one is in the roundabouts part of the guide. So um, if, if you just while I speak, Katarin, slide 26 is sort of where that is. And what we went through uh, a lot of details there's a table that's, that will go into the guide that has uh, geometric parameters or um, performance indicators, sorry, not performance, but sort of physical parameters of the roundabout and what they mean and how changing them in certain ways can influence the um, performance of roundabout and directly the capacity. So that last dot point there that says traffic flow interactions at roundabouts, including those things. There's a table that runs through each of those, um, each of the physical parameters and characteristics and how you may get better performance or worse performance if you increase or decrease um, those geometric um, parameters. What we're hoping to, to, to do is build that experience in designers and engineers that they go, okay, well, I, I know that if I've got some of these options, I'll, I'll try and develop design my way around it in this way because I know I actually want to increase this thing or maybe I want to reduce speeds and I don't mind capacity being reduced because the local street where we're not pressured for throughput capacity and I'll design my roundabout this way. So we're not saying that there's any right way to design a roundabout. There's, there's other guides that says that, but we're saying here's some uh, conversation about how that influences each other. Thanks, Mark. Um, we've got another question for slide 35. Um, did I get us to slide 35? No. 35. So, um, given high volatility in traffic demand and um, high interaction between control systems and, and demand, is there guidance on how to use it for real world um, scenarios? Uh, for this case study, we don't go to that extent. Acknowledge um, mm -hmm. there's number of adaptive signal softwares and platforms that, that do those types of things and also know that parts 9 and 10 do signalise intersections in much more detail and consideration than we put in part 3. So um, mm -hmm. that, that complexity is not in this part and definitely not in the case study. The, the objective of the case study where we see the real benefits is actually prov um, providing to an audience and a reader that is probably less um, an expert in the um, 
the, where that question comes from. Uh, I see that as a really advanced way to use signals, but um, the more uh, inexperienced and or definitely a, a newer person or someone that's adopting signals in, in a jurisdiction that hasn't had many, uh, this is a better case study to, to support their, their work. Thanks, Mark. Um, and we have one um, last question. So are your findings on roundabouts similar to studies by AR and DT? Um, I'm sort of guessing and jumping at what those um, initials are, but I, I, I won't get into that. Um, but what we're, we're saying is we're utilising existing research. We've not done new research, so um, probably something she said very earlier, we didn't actually have a research budget to go and validate and reinvent data that exists. We're, you know, we're taking um, work done by lots of people and, and sort of definitely a lot of Australia's reports that exist, um, you know, and some 1989 work that was done for roundabouts and applying that better and, and um, explaining it better than um, it was in the current guide. Okay, thanks so much. Um, well, I guess that brings us to the end of the Q&A. Uh, thanks so much, Mark, and thanks so much, uh, Emily, and uh, thanks to all our um, participants and your questions. Um, so before we wrap up, uh, I'll just say a few words um, about our next webinar. So we will have a very busy um, start uh, of 2021. Uh, there will be a lot of different sessions um, and I would like to draw your attention specifically to a series of webinars on updated pedestrian planning and design information. So this information has been incorporated in the guide to traffic management and will be um, incorporated in the guide to road design. Uh, and these sessions, uh, they are a continuation of um, a number of um, exceptionally popular webinars that we had in April 2020. And another session that you might find uh, interesting is the webinar on public transport prioritization, which we will have in March 2021. So um, to see all of the sessions that we've got scheduled, uh, please visit our website um, and register. So thanks again um, to our presenters. Thanks again to everyone. Um, uh, we hope you enjoyed the session and uh, found it useful. After we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. So please take a couple of minutes to fill it in and send us your feedback. Uh, it helps us a lot to know what you liked, what you didn't like, uh, and what suggestions you have for our future webinars. So thanks again, everyone. Um, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest uh, of your day and we hope to see you next time.